So you are today a professor of coaching and behavioural change at Henley Business School. And in that moment, you've decided that you want to come back and become a student on one of the coaching programmes within that business school. What are you seeing? What are you appreciating or thinking differently sitting back in that seat on the other side of the table? So much. It's landing so differently now with the years and experience and other things that I've done under my belt from when I first did my coach training. In essence, some of it is like watching a good film a second time, you see different things. One of the things that I've been really trying to challenge myself in this process of stepping back into the student's shoes is to be as open as I can, particularly where I feel resistance. So if I'm resisting something or I get a reaction to something, the old me would be like, oh, what? I just won't use that one or I won't explore that or I won't use that question. And what's landing differently now is I've got that space to think, well, why am I resisting that? And what's that telling myself about me? And what would happen if I just experiment with that? It's been very liberating, kind of just to let that all go and just really adopt that learner's mindset and it's probably the first time in my life that I have really done that. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another unlock moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Back in 2019, 2020, when I started on this journey of coaching, speaking, podcasting and writing, I had the great privilege of training on the Henley Business School coaching program here in the UK. My guest today is an esteemed professor at Henley, and I was fascinated by her recent choice to trade places and become a student on the same program that I trained on. We'll talk about that. But her personal journey is also, frankly, pretty inspiring, how she beat the odds to ascend the academic ladder and become a business school professor. Professor Rebecca Jones, PhD, is a professor in coaching and behavioral change at Henley Business School, a chartered psychologist and co-founder of the Inclusive Leadership Company. Her research interests lie in examining the factors that influence coaching effectiveness, and her consultancy practice focuses on working with organizations to create diverse and inclusive workspaces using coaching and psychological theory and research to achieve sustained behavior change. Rebecca is the author of the book, Coaching with Research in Mind, host of Coaching at Henley and the Coaching Academic Podcasts, and has published her research in globally renowned journals. I'm looking forward to hearing more of her personal journey, and also to get her take on how we can turn intent into action and establish effective new habits in work and life that help us to be at our very best. Professor Rebecca Jones, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. 
Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. So, Rebecca, today you're a professor at one of the leading business schools here in the UK. But where would we need to start in your story to really understand the person you are today? That's such an interesting question. And I think that, I I suppose one thing that influences my answer to this question is the fact that I supervised a few students now who have conducted research on this kind of topic. So I've I've supervised Dr. Julia Carden, who's now finished her PhD research, and she was interested in this concept of self-awareness. So, of course, knowing where to start is a level of self-awareness, isn't it? It's kind of which parts of my story influence who I am today. And I'm also now supervising another student, Heather Frost, who's interested in this idea of concept of self and this idea of who do we believe is is kind of the core of me and is that stable over time and am I unified self and all of these really interesting things. So I suppose when I think about that, there are so many things that have influenced who I am today. I think not least my ambition and drive, which I inherited probably from both of my parents, but predominantly my father was always very ambitious entrepreneur. Self-belief, which I definitely got from my parents, belief that I can achieve whatever I, I want to achieve. And in fact, I was reflecting with the team on Monday, we had a team day and I was saying, you know, when I was at primary school, I remember saying that I wanted to be prime minister and uh, <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I have didn't end up going in that direction, but it never occurred to me that that wouldn't be possible. If I wanted to do it, then I could do it. I mean, you never know in the UK, there's always an opening coming up in that job. Uh, I know. (laughs) I'm not sure I can handle another career change, but um, I guess it, it was probably, you know, my decision to study psychology was a core influence. I selected psychology as one of my A levels, and that has been then kind of a lifelong love, I suppose, with understanding human behavior. Uh, how we think, how we feel. And that has influenced most of my decisions along the way, albeit with some diversions at some points. (laughs) So um, when I finished my A-levels, I did my undergraduate in psychology with marketing management, actually. And then after that, I decided to go and get a job because I was a bit sick of being a student with no money. And I really wanted to start earning some money. I applied for a few different kind of graduate management training programs and I got a job at Manpower, the recruitment agency. And I thought, well, this, I'd quite like to interview people and maybe help them get a job. And I thought that's what that would all be about. And then I got pregnant with my son, who is now 18. And I was quite young at the time. Uh, I was 24 when I was pregnant, 25 when I had him. And at that point, I really couldn't, it was not, I didn't feel like it would be possible for me to carry on doing the job that I've been doing. So my ex, who's my son's father, he was not really, uh, you know, it was never really part of the discussion that he would perhaps help be very hands-on with the childcare. You know, this was 18 years ago. And so for me, that was still going to be my primary responsibility. And I was commuting quite a lot and working quite long hours. So I decided to leave that role and I took a part-time job actually for the Citizens Advice Bureau as an administrator. Then uh, my ex and I then split up when my son was quite young. He was just nine months old. So I did find myself in a bit of an unexpected 
position then being 25, now given up my career in a part-time job, single parent. And th- that was pretty tough period of my life, but you know, it's, it was fine. We got through it and, you know, I was very fortunate in many other ways. So then kind of fast forward a number of years, I met my now husband and we got married and I had um, a critical moment there where I kind of really decided to change my job situation. So I was still working part-time at that point. I changed into a different company, but still part-time, still in admin, was pretty much unfulfilled. I'm feeling a bit disillusioned really with the career aspect of my life. And, and I think that story that you tell will resonate with so many people because it's really common. It's really common that you know people come out of school, maybe out of university with all these grand ambitions for all of the impact they're going to have on the world as prime minister or world <laughs> king, if you're Boris going through his, his kind of journey. And then of course, life has reality, like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the challenges of trying to balance parenthood and uh, a career. And as you say, you, you know, you're a single parent uh, and people have bills to pay. And, you know, some of those things that are exciting and not necessarily accessible to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And reality is that you can listen to an awful lot of people on podcasts who are you know, you're, you're hearing that kind of success bias where you hear all the people who won the Olympic gold medal or became CEO of the business or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And they're inspiring to listen to. But then so many people go, but I couldn't have done that. I didn't have mm-hmm. that opportunity. And I'm really interested to, to hear from you that, that kind of that transition where that was your path too. Um, and mm-hmm. then you came to this moment of remarkable clarity on that journey that really pivoted your direction. So yes. bring us into that time and what was happening for you leading into that moment and then tell us what actually happened. Yes. Yes, so I was feeling kind of deeply dissatisfied, I guess, with where work was. And I think reflecting back now, it was probably because every other aspect of my life had got sorted out. You know, before when I was a single parent and I was, money was very, very tight and my son was very young and I was still quite young. So it, it was just, you know, I was trying to, every day was just trying to figure everything out and do the best that I could, but often feeling that I wasn't doing such a great job. And I think when I got to the point where I was ready to make a change, I kind of got those other things figured out. I was then in a, a stable relationship. I didn't have to worry about money as much because now there was there were two of us. But basically for me, what happened was I remember distinctly we, I was having dinner with my husband and two of our close friends. And we were sat at the table in just in my house at the time. And I can't remember what we were talking about. I guess perhaps it must have been work, but I just had this, this, moment, this decision where I decided that I wanted to go back to university and do a master's in occupational psychology. And um, what's quite strange about that decision is I hadn't really been discussing it or talking to my husband about it. We talk about these things lots. I don't even remember dwelling on it myself. I mean, I do tend to be quite decisive and make if I kind of want to do something, I just make the decision and do it. So that's, that's not unusual for me. And he kind of looked at me and thought, where's this come from? 
And that was it. That was the moment. I just kind of, kind of straight after that, I found out my options and I enrolled and I started then uh, as soon as I could on, on the master's. There are definitely two things that enabled me to do that, that other people perhaps haven't had the fortune of having. One is that self-belief. I, I know, as, and I'm sure you do as well, as when you coach people, so many people are held back by kind of crippling self-doubt that they might not be up to it or it, it might be too much. And, and I am very lucky that that doesn't generally isn't something that holds me back too much. It's not to say that I don't have moments where I doubt myself or lack confidence, or, or certainly I get very nervous at certain things. But I do have, and I do, and I always have had this belief that if we really want something and we work hard and we've got the resources available, we can achieve it. So I knew it would be hard, but I felt like deep down I would be able to do it. So that that's one thing that I have had. And, and I think I have got that from my upbringing critically. And the other thing I had was some money. So um, I had sold the house that I owned with my ex by this point, And I had a little bit of money in the bank and that could pay for my fees. And if I hadn't had those things, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So, you know, there is, there's always certain things that kind of are enablers or barriers to any decision we make. So I'm very aware and thankful that I had those benefits really that enabled me to make that choice, which then changed things for me and my family. There's so much in that. And it's a beautiful articulation of a true unlock moment because you know I, I describe unlock moments as these moments of sudden remarkable clarity and usually not somebody who is sitting there trying to figure out that particular problem. And then eventually at the end of thinking about it, they go, right, I've decided what the answer is. It's like it comes out of nowhere, you mm. know, and you said the same thing. You weren't having a conversation about your options ahead. You weren't having a conversation about whether or not you should go and do a master's. You were probably talking about something completely different. And suddenly this thought came into your head, fully formed clear, and you announced it to the people around the table. And you were as surprised as them when, when you said it. Mm-hmm. And then you said, um, I didn't know the next parts of the journey. Mm. And I think that's important because I often talk about, we spend a lot of time thinking about the moments when we did a thing or the moments when we decided a thing. And I don't think we spend enough time thinking about the times when we knew a thing. And the time when we, in this case, when you knew a thing was you knew that you wanted to go back to university and do a master's. There were a lot of other things you had to figure out after that yes. point of knowing. But you describe how clear that was in that moment to you. And for me, that is, well, that is an unlocked moment. That is, that is the mm. thing that we're talking about. When you think to other moments you've had, does that stand out as unusually unexpected and unusually clear compared with other, other revelations you've had in your life or career? I think it does because it was so, such a critical shift in where I was to what I decided to do. So I completely identify with these kind of moments of clarity and, you know, we often call it like a light bulb moment. And, uh, I, I think a lot about stuff, perhaps not surprising as someone who's an academic and I will often, it is often at the most unlikely times that something, an answer to perhaps a problem that I'm mulling over will pop into my head. But for that, it, it that moment, 
really changed things. It, it was like a sliding doors moment where, you know, if I if I hadn't decided to, I mean, of course, I might have come to it again later, but it, it certainly changed the the path that I was on quite completely, entirely. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? I'm interested in what you said about money mm. because you said, and I understand this, you know, I was privileged to be in a position where I had enough money to do it. Mm. Did you have to make compromises in your life to make the money work? Yes, yes, of course. No, at that point, we didn't have lots of money. We had enough, and I certainly had more money then than I'd had before. But my choice to spend this bit of savings I had on my tuition fees meant that we couldn't have other things. So all through the years when I was studying, so probably five years in total, so two years for the MSc, and then the first three years of my PhD, we didn't have very much money. And it meant that we had our holidays in in caravan parks in the UK and, and not even in the summer, you know, it was too expensive in the summer. We would go at Easter because it was cheaper and just hope that the weather was okay. But it didn't matter, you know, we had a great time and, you know, it's very fortunate that in the relationship that I was in, that it's been a partnership and give and take. And, you know, it, it, he was happy for me to take that in the hope that it would improve our family life for the better. And, but I guess then I felt the pressure as well. You know, I thought, oh goodness, we spent most of our savings on this. I better not fail because <laughs> then it's all been kind of a waste of money, time and effort. So I certainly felt it differently to, I think, when you're an undergraduate and certainly for me, going back to studying, having paid for things myself, not having lots of spare cash to do that, it made it much more critical that I did well. It's interesting, isn't it? And when, when you look back on those choices that you made, were they difficult choices or did it feel just obvious to do? At the time, it was just obvious. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. I don't know. You'd have to ask my husband how he felt, but for me, it was I, I almost <laughs> not a choice. I had to do it. It was once I decided that yeah. was it. And tell me about getting into your PhD. Yes. So this, as I said earlier, I, I never, or certainly not at the stage that I decided to do the master's as I thought I would do a PhD. I've never had aspirations to do a PhD. I barely knew much about what a PhD was. I was the first person in my family to go to university. So the whole university system was a mystery. I'd never heard of the Russell Group until I started even working but in university. So, you know, I certainly didn't really understand what a PhD was, although I would say probably if you'd asked me, I'd say it's what very clever people did. And I didn't and still don't consider myself to be a very clever person. But so along the way, so I did it my master's part time in, in the evenings. And so it took two years instead of one would, would have been one year full time. It was two years. And I guess all the way through, I was thinking that I would become an occupational psychologist and get a job as an occupational psychologist, either within a, a big company or perhaps in a consultancy. 
I was still a bit concerned at that point about how I would continue to navigate being a mum and doing that kind of job. Because of course, until this point, I'd only worked part-time. My son was four when I started the master's. And then just before the end, well, I sat my exams when I was heavily pregnant with my second child. So my son would have been six then. So I was about to have another baby and I was And I was not sure how then I would, I didn't think this was the type of job you could probably do part-time, certainly not as someone coming into a new profession. So that did influence my decision. And then the other thing, the main influence for the decision was that I just found that I loved doing the dissertation and the piece of research. And that was a, that was unexpected. I hadn't expected to love the process of doing research as much as I did. I I knew that I loved the topics in occupational psychology, but I just really enjoyed it. And I thought, well, maybe this could be an option. Maybe I could see if I could do a bigger piece of research, which at that point I, that's what I understood a PhD was. So I started exploring options for funding. And I realized really with another baby on the way, a six-year-old, if I wanted to do this, I was going to need to give up the part-time job and and kind of dedicate my time to it. And the only way I could have done that was to get some funding. So I started doing my research on what those options might be. And I applied for a number of like scholarships or studentships, they call them. I had a couple of interviews, I think, or conversations. And then I landed on Aston Business School and a supervisor who ended up being my supervisor. And I traveled up there and uh, arrived at the time for the meeting. I was so nervous because I really wanted him to, you know, when you do a PhD, you need someone to say, yes, I'll be your supervisor. Without that, you're not going to get accepted on the program. So it was really critical that he would say he would supervise me so I could then apply for the scholarship. And I was particularly nervous because I hadn't told him I was pregnant. And I had lots of concerns and worries that he might then make assumptions or judgments about my ability to study a full-time PhD with what would be a three-month-old baby. And perhaps doubting my decision not to mention it until I arrived there. But to me, it, it almost wasn't relevant. You know, I knew that I could do it. I'm very organized. Any of my colleagues will tell me that, tell anyone that speaks to them that kind of planning and organization is my superpower. So, you know, I I kind of had it all planned out in my head, how I would manage and cope with this. It was my second baby. So I was less, uh, I knew a little bit more about what to expect. Anyway, I, I rocked up to the meeting and with this great big, huge tummy and it just didn't come up. You know, it didn't come up for him. We had a normal conversation. It ended with him agreeing to be my supervisor. He really gave me a lot of support in developing my proposal, which we then submitted. And I remember waiting over that summer in between. So my son was born in the July. I think, uh, you know, it was around that period that I kind of submitted the proposal and heard the decision all in those critical months. So a lot happened in that period. I also submitted my dissertation for my MSc. And I finally got the email. I knew the day that the email was coming and we, we, I was kind of waiting, checking, refreshing it every moment to see if the emails had arrived. And I got an email from Steve to say that I was on the reserve list. I was number one on the reserve list, but I hadn't got a place. And I was gutted. I thought, oh no, what? 
what are we going to do? I didn't have a backup plan. This was it. I had this, I'd only now pursued this one option and I hadn't really thought past that if I didn't get on it. And luckily for me, someone dropped out and I got that place. I got the last place. And that's when things really did change because then I resigned from my job. And in the October, I enrolled, properly started on the program and yeah, just had a, a fantastic experience really of, of doing the PhD. I got some kind of teaching as part of the studentship. It was definitely hard. You know, it was a lot of studying around the children and evenings and weekends, which are not my preferred times to work, but, you know, we made it work and, you know, that was the best decision that I've, I've ever made. How did it make you feel that you can rock up to an interview at seven months pregnant and it's not mentioned? Oh, amazing. No, I can't describe how it makes you feel kind of seen and heard for what I was actually saying, for who I truly was, rather than uh, one part of me, which is the fact that I was pregnant. It's the essence of inclusion for me, being valued for who I uniquely was. And I think there are these threads that I hear coming through your story so strongly come back to these things you said at the beginning about ambition and drive, that sense of self-belief, that sense of being decisive. And then you just said here, no backup plan. But then there's also inclusion is very personal to you because you had that moment yourself of feeling included and experiencing what it felt for a person to see you for who you really are and your whole self. Um, and obviously that, that connects now with some of the work you're doing today, which, you know, we, we can talk a bit about later. So you, you did your PhD, you progressed in your career. Talk to me about becoming a professor and that journey. Yes. So I guess for someone who's very ambitious, coming into a career where there is a very linear career path with an ultimate goal Perhaps it's a dangerous thing for someone like me because you dangle that in front of me. I thought, well, yeah, I want that title now. <laughs> now that I've kind Prime of realized I could get it, I'm going to go for that. So I kind of made that decision came quite early on when I was in the, when I was doing my PhD, I decided then I wanted to become an academic and I wanted to be a professor. And I, I set myself a goal to, uh, I wanted to be a professor by the time I was 40, I said, I started the PhD when I was 31. So it was quite an unlikely goal. Some might say unrealistic, but anyway, I decided, yes, I wanted to be professor by the time I was 40. And yes, basically from there, I just set about it in a very kind of logical manner, identify, well, what boxes do I need to tick? How do you get there? learning as much as I could about the system, talking to people who were professors, watching and observing role models that had managed to navigate the system, really being clear about how I could navigate the system in a way that was authentic to me. So things like well-being and balance have always been important to me. And so I didn't want to lose sight of that while striving for this goal. So it was always about the balance of, of the two. Um, and yes, just having a very strategic plan, I guess, for my career at that point. So that, that was another shift for me because I, I definitely never had this before. 
pretty much every career decision, big and small, that I've made since then have been in the pursuit of this goal of becoming a professor. So interesting. And I think there's a really strong connection with a previous guest that I've had on the podcast last year called Whitney Johnson, who's one of the world leading coaches in, in the US. And before she was a coach, she was in investment banking. And the first role that she was in in the bank was as a secretary mm. to the bankers. And she tells this story of kind of looking over the edge of the desk and seeing these traders trading stocks in a bank. And she talked to one of the senior people and she said, I think I could do that. I want you to train me. And mm. they did. And they retrained her from the secretarial assistant administrative path into the banking trading path. And she became a very, very successful Wall Street trader. Mm. And it's so interesting because that is not a path that people take. People don't go from being assistants and admin and secretarial roles in a bank to, well, we're going to take those people and make them the traders. And you, it was a pretty, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty quick path for you from being in a part-time admin role with a young baby to becoming a professor in a business school. How long was it from admin to professor in your journey? Well, I didn't quite hit the 40 goal that I set myself, but I was 43 when it happened. So it was pretty close. I'll give myself the grace. And COVID did happen in between, which definitely impacted on the the overall plan. So, I mean, I was 31 when I started the PhD. And before that, well, I was in an admin role up until the point that I started the PhD. So, yeah, just over kind of 10 years, really. And you and I will both know a lot of people who might be at that stage or, or any, any stage of career, but the people that say, I wish I'd gone for something when I was younger, when I still had time. Mm. And sometimes they're in their 20s, sometimes in their 30s, sometimes in their 50s, sometimes in, even in their 70s. I've coached people in their 70s who've been, oh, really? I have, I have the opportunity to do something with the next part of my life or career? So of course you do. And yeah. I think it's so inspiring to hear from people who went, because I chose, because I decided that was a path I was going to go on. I didn't know at that time, certainly how I would get there. I certainly didn't know whether I would get there. But you decided with self-belief, decisiveness, and a bit of what we, I guess in the old school way, we'd say pluck, something like that. You say, <laughs> it's something I want to do. And you said that you got that from your parents. How much of that do you think is instinctive to you and how much of it do you think was learned from other people um i guess i feel like quite a lot of it is instinctive or learned from that early those early years and one of the reasons i say that is i see a lot of those traits in my sister so i do think there's something about that that upbringing or whatever it is our genes that we that we share but it's I guess it's one of the reasons that I was attracted to coaching specifically as well, because I do believe that we have autonomy and choice with the right tools and resources, which coaching can help us to access. Because often those tools and resources are internal to us. You know, it's in our, our own mind and the way that we think about things. So I'm not sure. I don't know. I, a mix of both. It's something I have certainly allowed to thrive it, it, you know, I probably had it as quite a young child and it's, I've nurtured it, if you like, with things that I've read and paid attention to and continue to develop it. And we both know in the coaching world, you don't need to have all the answers. 
Exactly. That's a, a good thing for listeners to hear that I find some of my most interesting conversations on this podcast uh, with people who haven't got it all figured out yet. They're still mm. in that journey. And, and in a way, I think that's a lovely segue to what you're doing right now. And one of the reasons why I thought it would be such a fascinating moment in your journey to talk to you. So you are today a professor of coaching and behavioral change at Henley Business School. And in that moment, you've decided that you want to come back and, and, and become a student on one of the coaching programs within that business school. Mm. And for a variety of different reasons, but sitting in that student seat now as, as a learner there, what are you learning? What are you seeing? What are you appreciating or thinking differently sitting back in that seat on the other side of the table? So much. <laughs> I'm so much. It land, it's landing so differently now with the years and experience and other things that I've done under my belt, really, from when I first did my coach training, which was quite early on. I did that as part of my PhD studies. So, you know, it's well over 10 years ago that I did the first coaching certificates. It's hard to know where to start, really. I think that in essence, some of it is like watching a good film a second time. You see different things. So I'm definitely noticing different things from the tutors, from the practice, from my peers that I, I didn't notice the first time because there's only so much we can pay attention to as, as humans. And when you're learning something new, you're often overwhelmed and overloaded. So I've got the privilege, again, that I know some of this stuff, so perhaps I don't have to pay attention so much to some of that, but it gives me more capacity to pay attention to different things that I didn't notice. So that's definitely one element. It's also, we started this conversation, I was talking about self-awareness and knowing, knowing myself really well. And one of the things that I've been really trying to challenge myself in this process of stepping back into the student's shoes is to be as open as I can, particularly where I feel resistance. So if I'm resisting something or I get a reaction to, to something, perhaps it's, you know, we're talking about a specific, even just a question that we might ask in a coaching conversation or a particular tool or technique. And I can feel that, oh, I'm not sure about this. I don't think, I, you know, the old me would be like, oh, what? I just won't use that one or I won't explore that or I won't use that question. And what's landing differently now is I've got that space to think, well, why am I resisting that? And what's that telling myself about me? And what would happen if I just experiment with that? I might still decide that I don't really like that tool or technique or that question, but I might not. And I might find something different to do or learn something about myself. And I, and I certainly have. And I guess the other thing that has been quite liberating but was challenging was, was overcoming the perception of how other people might see me coming in as a peer. Would they have expectations that I would be this amazing coach? And was I going to embarrass myself if I wasn't very good? And having to let all that go, because that's just going to get in the way of me doing a good job as a coach and certainly a good job as a student, which is about learning and being curious and open and experimenting. And I did quite a lot of work with my colleagues, with the tutors supported me as well, really thinking about how we navigate this. And that's probably been one of the biggest shifts as well. It's been very liberating kind of just to let that all go and just really adopt that learner's mindset. And it's probably the first time in my life that I have really 
done that. And I think that's something that the title, in a way, conversely gives you. So now that I've achieved that badge of professor, there's a lot of stuff I don't need to worry about as much anymore. So it gives me more space to to do some of these other important things that perhaps I was kind of, I don't know, doing a bit more performatively, like let's get through this, do the learning, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I think that I mean, I really resonate with what you're saying, because I think that I didn't really understand what a growth mindset meant until mm. four or five years ago, when I first really came across the phrase, it wasn't one that I, I particularly thought about or explored before. And I think it was only in the last year or two, funnily enough, probably mostly driven by the conversations on the podcast, that I started to really feel like I was in this constant personal sort of growth through just being exposed to the, the inner thoughts of so many people who come from different walks of life and have different expertise. And I remember a conversation that I had with Dr. Ruth Gotian on the podcast, who is based in New York and, again, a, a world-leading coach, but also a world-leading educator in the medical field in, in the US. And she wrote a brilliant book called The Success Factor, which is about the habits of super high performers. So she would interview astronauts and Olympic gold medalists and Nobel Prize winners. And one of the common factors that she said that she observed in almost all of them was this commitment to continual development of your underpinning foundational talents and strengths. So they weren't going, I'm learning another thing and another thing and another thing. They were coming back to, I'm continuing to develop the thing that makes me great. So if they're a basketball player, they would be coming back to the fundamentals of playing basketball. And I think that what you're talking about here is an example of that, that you are a professor in coaching, you know, you are towards the pinnacle of that academic path, and then choosing to come back into a place of exploring what happens when you sit in the student seat again. And I think it's such a fascinating thing to do, uh, and a brave thing to do as well. But I can, I can hear from the way you describe it, how meaningful it is for you, you know, right, right now. Mm. I'm fascinated by this idea of the learning that creates behavior change and the behavior change that really sticks. And I know this is part of your academic interest and, and a part mm. of your job title now too. So many people that I'm talking to and working with are, are trying to grapple with that. They go, you know, I understand that I'm trying to build my awareness and I understand that I'm trying to set out a plan for the future. But what I actually want is the change. And I want that mm. change to happen and I want that change to sustain. So when you're working in coaching or when you're thinking about sort of the academic underpinnings of how this happens, what do you think really are the critical things people need to be thinking about to turn awareness into action and turn action into action that really sticks? Mm. Oh, I think we need a whole other podcast to answer that question. But um, I will try and, and do my best to summarize kind of the essence of some of the things that I think are important. But I suppose the first thing to say is that it, it's very complicated and there's still lots of things we don't know about behavior change. But there are some things that I think we can pay attention to or that I would always emphasize. Um, and, and, you know, some of these are common sense stuff as well. And, and I always... I, I always like research that kind of confirms what's common sense. I don't know why, but I like it. And the simplicity of certain things, but 
I always say just because something simple doesn't mean we do it and doesn't mean it's easy. Simple doesn't mean easy. And often the simplest things are the most powerful things. The key is finding ways that we can make it work in our own lives. So I guess the first thing is coming back to self-awareness. So knowing yourself and, and this links to inclusion as well. Inclusion is all about valuing uniqueness and belonging. And that valuing uniqueness is really critical. I think as a leader, we need to value the uniqueness of, of our people. But in ourselves, we need to appreciate that we are a unique human being in all of our different glory. And that means that what works for one person in helping them change their behavior is probably not going to work for me. But to know that I need to know myself, I need to know myself well, I need to understand where have I felt resistance, where have I not met my goals, where have I found barriers that have been too big for me to overcome, and really spending time to reflect and understand those elements of, of myself. And that can be hard. And that's one of the things that I, I argue in, in my research, in fact, I talk about this in, in my book, is a, that coaching is about harnessing that power of reflective thought. A coach creates the safe container for someone to reflect quite deeply and raise that level of awareness about themselves. Once we've got that, we can start to find different strategies and techniques and whatever it is to create that behavior change. So I guess those are kind of two things. It's, it's the know yourself well and appreciate that we're all different and having self-awareness and linked to that is self-compassion as well. I see so many people kind of beating themselves up because they see someone else doing something and they think, well, why can't I do it? So-and-so's done it. They can do this. They can do that. Why can't I do it? And, and I just always come back to this idea that, you know, as long as we're judging ourselves against other people, we're always going to fail. You know, it's, we've got to come back to ourselves the other thing that's really critical is around goal setting. So again, I talk about this in the book. And again, it's something that coaches do. This is why I think coaching is such a powerful tool for behavior change. But it's about understanding what's important to us, understanding kind of our, the big picture dream and our core values and the, you know, our essence of who we are as people and what we want to achieve, and then translating that into goals, whether those are big picture goals or very specific goals, and having that very clear. And, and the research demonstrates the power of goals. It, it's you know not to be underestimated. Once we have a very specific goal and we know why it's important to us, it harnesses our energy. It enables us to persist for longer. It focuses our cognitive attention. So we're more likely to pay attention to things towards that goal. And we can then discount things that are, are less in, important. And I really think about that a lot with my journey to being a professor that we talked about earlier because I had this very clear goal. I knew why it was important to me and I, I had a pathway how to get there. I could really ignore all the other stuff in life that was there to kind of divert my attention and focus and stay very focused on, on that goal. So yeah, using goal setting wisely and it is a, another key to behavior change. And then the last thing, again, which is very simple, but very powerful, and it's called implementation intentions. And again, I talk about this in the book, but the idea behind implementation intentions, and this comes from uh, health research predominantly, but it's this idea that we really form an intention about how we're going to implement the behavior change. So it's being very specific about what is it that I want to change and when am I going to do that? 
And then really thinking about what might get in my way and what will I do if that happens? You know, having that plan A, B, C to overcome, to continue on that pathway. So yes, it's, as I said, it's not, I don't think there's this, this, unfortunately, no simple recipe for really embedding behavior change. But I do think that there are things that we can pay attention to from the field of psychology. And and certainly lots of those are used in, in coaching, which is one of the reasons that coaching is so impactful. It's so fascinating. And it's fascinating to hear you describe more of the scientific and academic foundations of how it happens. When we've just heard your story of going on that journey too, and we can, we can draw those parallels. And I think that there's something that shines through really strongly for me in your unlock moment, which is you can have the goal and you can form the path and you can understand what might get in your way. But in addition, there was a moment where you decided mm. and you decided with clarity and drive and self-belief and you knew that you were going to do it. And when I look at people on this podcast, but I also you know, look at people I work with in coaching and in other contexts, there is a, there's a difference between the people who can do all of the strategizing, but it never quite happens, and the people who maybe haven't quite got the path all figured out yet, but they still make it happen because they have that determination and drive. And so that I think there is something that, that just comes through very strongly about for you. At a point, you decided that it was going to happen. And however it was going to happen, you were going to get there. And I, I really appreciate that in your story. I think it, it comes to life really, really nicely. And I think that it will be quite inspiring to people listening to this story. When you think back over the conversation we've had, is there anything that's clearer to you now than before we started talking today? Um, yes, I, I guess like lots of people, I don't, often take time out to really reflect on the whole journey, I suppose, as much as I have today. The one thing that is clear, and and I have talked about this here, but I possibly I wouldn't have said this about myself even recently, is um, how decisive I can be. Um, I don't know why, but that's probably not Historically, I probably wouldn't have described myself in in that way, but kind of retelling the story, that does certainly seem to be a theme for me. (laughs) And I don't, I'm not sure that that's always a good thing, Um, but it's, yes, it's probably there. Uh, And it's, it's linked actually to something we haven't really talked about here, but I am quite impatient. (laughs) And so I think partly I don't have the patience to not make a decision. I'd rather just, I'm very action driven. So I want to make an, a decision and then just start going ahead with it. And, and one thing I haven't really talked about is, and, and I, I think is important for listeners to understand, because certainly this helped me realizing this at the time is the pathway from PhD to professor wasn't smooth. I applied three times to become a professor in my current institution. And I was, of course, unsuccessful twice before the final time when I was appointed. And that was very hard to pick myself up after those applications and try again and not let it get me down or, um, you know, give up because it's not an easy process. 
And uh, it, it's often, you know, we see a snapshot often of people's lives where someone's achieved this in however many years, or it looks like, you know, you don't often see the, the disappointment and challenge that goes behind it. And when you're the person, when you've been rejected for a second time running, you, you, it's easy to think, well, why me? Everyone else has been appointed and, you know, I'm working really hard and am I ever going to get there? And, and I, I think at that point for me, I, something else kicked in then and it did start to become less just about me. And, and I wanted to kind of prove something and be able to support other people that were on the pathway as well to show it is actually possible, even if it doesn't, you don't get there straight away, it's possible. So yes, I guess having that resilience and persistence is there as well. And I thank you for being so open, actually, in in, in telling that story and, and how it really feels to be there. And I think, again, that will resonate with people listening, because it's common that it feels like that. And there's something about how do you find that inner will, that inner drive to go, I know it's really hard, but I'm going to make it happen. I've decided I'm going to make it happen. I don't know how, I don't know when, mm-hmm. but it's going to happen. Don't get me wrong, that, that resilience and picking myself up was never immediate. It was normally after about six months of saying, I'm never going to apply again. I'm, that's it. This is the last time before I finally kind of came back to it and thought, yep, I'll give it a go. <laughs> I love it. Rebecca, how can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. So uh, Rebecca Jones on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect with people. And that's the best place really to stay in touch with things like research insights or things that are going on in the world of coaching and also around inclusion. So please do connect with me there. But you can also find me on our website, which is inclusiveleadershipcompany.com. So this is part of my own private practice as well, which is an area I'm really passionate around bringing inclusive leadership to organizations. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For leading business school professor Rebecca Jones, it was a moment at a dinner party when she suddenly declared, that she wanted to go back to university and study that represented a deeply held will to fulfill her maximum potential and break a few barriers along the way. Check out the Inclusive Leadership Company and reach out to connect with Rebecca on LinkedIn. It's been such a pleasure, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation with someone who broke a few glass ceilings on her way to career success, Then check out episode 51 with educator and coach Dr. Ruth Gautian, who went back to school at the age of 43 while working full-time and with three young kids. And episode 63 with world-leading coach Whitney Johnson, who transitioned from the secretarial offices to the trading floor in a Wall Street investment bank. And if you resonated with the will to make something happen that others thought wasn't possible, then check out episode 46 with Mark Kramer, who turned school exam failure into stunning career success. And episode 94, with champion rugby league star Stevie Ward, who responded to a head injury and forced retirement by creating a powerful new purpose for his life. Bookmark these episodes for later. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. 
find me on Instagram at DrGaryCrotez, and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening, and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.